I should like to call your attention this evening to a portion of that scripture which we read at the beginning, namely the words that are to be found in the gospel according to St. Luke in chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Verses 1 to 9 in the 13th chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or these eighteen, upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that, Thou shalt cut it down. Now there, you see, we have direct and specific teaching by our Lord in the form of a comment, an explicit statement, and also the same message conveyed to us in the form of a parable. And it is clear that our Lord spoke the parable in order to drive home and to impress upon the minds of these people the truth of what he had just been saying to them. Now, the way you remember in which our Lord came to speak about this very thing was this. He'd been speaking in a very solemn manner about the uh, last judgment, about how everybody would be judged when he came back into the world, that all would be tried, both good and bad. And he talks about the various degrees of punishment which shall be meted out. And his warning is that everybody should be ready. And he stresses in particular this element of uncertainty as to the time of his coming. He says that uh, we never know when he's coming. This, uh, some of these evil servants had said, My Lord, uh, delayeth his coming and... Uh, because of that, they began to beat the men servants and maidens and to eat and drink and to be drunken. But he says, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Now, it was as the result of all that, you see, and the remainder of this address and sermon that some of the people present said to our Lord, you make us think this out of that case of the Galileans who've recently been slaughtered by Pilate. 
those Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Seems to us, they said, that they had a case in point. They must have been a particularly evil lot of people for this to happen to them. And you remember our Lord's reply. He said, you think that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the Galileans because this happened to them? I say no. And unless you repent, the same thing will happen to you. All those eighteen upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell in Jerusalem, do you think that because that happened to them that they were greater sinners than the other people upon whom the Tower didn't fall? I say nay. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now, here you see our Lord is taking up and dealing with something that is very common amongst us uh, human beings. Let me put it to you like this. I suppose that there is no truer or more exact way of discovering where every one of us really stands from the standpoint of Christianity and our relationship to God, no more sure or certain way of finding exactly where we are and what we are and what our true position is, then our reaction to the things that happen round and about us. By our reactions to what we are told or what we hear or what we see, we betray exactly what we are and what the type of our thinking really is. Now, our Lord made this point many, many times. You will find that at the end of the 12th chapter of the Gospel, according to St. Matthew, he puts it like this. He says, by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. He says that every man at the end will have to give an account of every idle word that he speaks. What he means by idle word is this. Every word that we speak off God, every impulsive word. In other words, he says, what really justifies you, what shows what you are, is what you say. By your words you shall be justified. By your words you shall be condemned. In other words, when we hear of something, a calamity like this terrible earthquake that has happened this past week in North Africa, or anything similar. Now, what our Lord is saying is this. Our reaction to that kind of thing proclaims exactly what we are. Our response to such an event rarely makes a proclamation as to our whole position, our whole view of life, our whole and total attitude towards God. Now, this is, of course, the case because of the effect of sin upon us. Sin is the most devastating thing that has ever entered into the world. You know, the effect of an atomic bomb or even an earthquake is nothing compared with the devastating effect of sin. There is no ruin that any calamity, natural or man-produced, uh, has uh, ever taken place there is no calamity that has led to consequences such as 
sin and the fall of men have led to. There is no end to the effects of sin. The whole world as it is today, as I'm never tired of pointing out, is entirely the result of sin. You see, the world was made perfect. God looked at it and saw it was all good. It was paradise. Well, why is it as It's sin. But in particular, I say, the most terrible thing that sin has done to the human race it is, is what it has done to our minds. What it has done to us in the realm of our thinking. That is what the Bible emphasizes from beginning to end. It does it generally like this. It says that the trouble ultimately with the sinner is that he is a fool. And that means a foolish man. That means he's a simpleton. That means that he doesn't know how to think. He doesn't know how to reason. He's not logical. His mind isn't functioning as his mind ought to function. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. The fool says this and that. Now, the Bible is full of that sort of thing. That's just another way of saying that of all its catastrophic effects upon us, there is none which is so terrible and devastating as what sin has done to our minds and to our thinking. What has it done? Well, I'm only going to mention three things this evening. The first thing that sin does to the mind is to produce a kind of general paralysis of the mind. Sin seems somehow or another to damage our mind at its very root. The whole of man's thinking as the result of sin is a kind of paralyzed thinking. It's an incapable thinking. Our Lord uses this expression himself after his resurrection as he talks to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Yeah, they were miserable and unhappy though they'd been given the report of his resurrection. He says, oh fools and slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have said. Fools and slow of heart. Now that slowness of heart means this kind of general paralysis of the mind to which I'm referring. And it manifests itself in a most extraordinary manner. It shows itself chiefly like this. That the minds which we have, all of us by nature, and as a result of sin are minds which uh, may be very good indeed in some realms, but the moment you come to the spiritual realm, they cease to function. And they seem to be quite useless. Did you notice how our Lord said that at the end of chapter 11? Listen to him. He said to the people, when you see a cloud rise in the west, straightway ye say, there cometh a shower. And so it is. You're quite right. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be heat. And it cometh to pass. You know, said our Lord, it's a very remarkable thing about you. You've obviously got minds, you've got brains, you've got understanding. Because you can see these signs in the heavens and uh, in the earth, and your interpretation of them is perfectly correct. You've observed, you've collated your facts. And on the result of this, you're able to make prophecies. So when you see the wind veering uh, to the west in that way, well, you say, a shower's about to come. And it does come. You're quite right. And likewise with the wind in the south. You hypocrites, he says, what's the matter with you? You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, 
But how is it then that you do not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? But isn't that the trouble with mankind? Man is brilliant perhaps in business or in the arts, in science or in his profession. There is a man, well, he's wonderful. Everybody pays attention to his judgment. Everybody's ready to listen to him. But you'll sometimes find that the same man in his own life is a fool. Well, it's the only thing to say about him. He may even be seated upon a bench as a judge of some sort. And if you put a case before him, which is an exact reproduction of what he's doing himself, he'll give a profound judgment with respect to it. And yet, the whole time, he's guilty of the same thing himself, and he doesn't see it. He's like David, you see. You remember David's terrible sin? He wanted the wife of that man Uriah the Hittite. So he committed adultery, and then he murdered the men. And he was very pleased with himself. He'd done what he wanted. He'd got what he desired. Nathan the prophet went to him, you remember, and just made a tale, worked up a story, describing exactly what David had done in other terms about a man stealing a man's one ewe lamb, you see, instead of using one of his own. And David waxed eloquent and righteous. This man, he said, must be punished. Couldn't see it in himself, he could see it in the other. Now, what, what explains that? That's the question. What's gone wrong with the mind of men? There's only one answer. That's what sin has done. Sin paralyzes the mind of men. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him, able men, intelligent men, logical men, men of knowledge, men of understanding, put this before them. They're like babes. They're like fools. The most brilliant men in the land, perhaps tonight, who are deniers of this gospel, you know, are doing exactly the same thing as the biggest ignoramus is doing on the street corner tonight, who equally denies it. There's no difference between them at all. Here they are at both extremes as regards intelligence, but when you put them before this, there's no difference at all. They say exactly the same. They scoff at it, they laugh at it, they make jokes about it. Exactly the same. What is it? It's sin in both instances, paralyzing the mind. Well, another thing it does is this. It introduces prejudices. And, of course, because of these prejudices that we have, we can't see anything straight. All seems yellow to the jaundiced eye. A man, we say, ah, oh, you see, the trouble with that man is he's seeing everything through rose-tinted spectacles. Exactly. You see, the spectacles determine everything. That's the prejudice. And this is another thing that sin does to men, so that when you put facts before them, they don't see the facts, but they see something else that they're interested in. Prejudices. That's why people don't believe the gospel. They talk about free thought. Free thinker's library. It's the most prejudiced library I know of. I can tell you at the beginning exactly what you're going to read there. It's the same old prejudices. They go on repeating them. There's no such thing as free thought. Prejudice. But then the thing I want to emphasize particularly tonight is this. The result of this kind of general paralysis of the mind, plus the prejudice that is insinuated, is that when we are confronted by something, we have a genius for missing the real point and going off in a tangent at, after something 
which is comparatively unimportant. Isn't that it? That's the effect of these other things. Here is the thing confronting us. What do we see? Do we see the big central principle? Oh, no. What we see is some odd thing that we happen to be interested in over there somewhere, a kind of tangent. We miss the center. We are concentrating on something on the circumference. We miss the big things, and we pay great attention to the little things. Well, now, what am I doing in saying all this? I'm doing nothing but summarizing our Lord's whole summing up and castigation of the Pharisees and scribes. He said, you know, the trouble with you uh, Pharisees and scribes is that you tithe mint and rue and anise and cumin. But you miss the weightier matters of the law, judgment and righteousness, and the love of God. When the case is put before you, you don't see the heart, you see the circumference. Somewhere distal, far away removed. That's your trouble, he says. Now that all I say is the result of sin upon the human mind. And you know, that's the whole tragedy that's unfolded in the pages of these four Gospels. Here is the Son of God in the flesh, standing before the human race, speaking and teaching, working miracles, giving demonstrations of his power, his authority, here to save mankind. What did they see in him? Oh, they concentrated on some trumpery things, on the circumference, asked their clever questions, made their irrelevant comments and remarks, and eventually crucified him and buried him. They missed the whole point in their preoccupation with their little prejudices. And in their going off, I say, at tangents after matters that are comparatively unimportant. Well, now, here in this incident that we've got to consider tonight, we've got one of the most perfect examples of this very thing. Our Lord had been speaking, as I tell you. Then these people said, ah, now then, those people whom uh, Pontius Pilate uh, murdered the other day, did that happen to them because they were greater sinners than anybody else? Is that it? Dear me, said our Lord, why will you miss the point? I say unto you, nay. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And the same with the people in Jerusalem on whom the tower fell. You see, there they were, missing the point, going off after something else, not really seeing the message, but interested in these odd prejudices of theirs on the circumference and the periphery. Well, now, that's how they were in the time when our Lord was here in this world, jumping to conclusions, not deducing things properly, not applying the message. And, my dear friends, isn't the world still the same? What I'm going to ask you, therefore, at this moment is this. What's your reaction to the earthquake in North Africa? What have you said about it? What have you thought about it? Well, by whatever you've thought and by whatever you've said, you've been proclaiming exactly where you are. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. Let's test ourselves. You see, what our Lord tells us here is this. Let me try to extract his teaching into the head of three principles. 
There is a wrong way of looking at these things. There is a right way of looking at these things. There is a message to be garnered and gathered from these things that can prove salvation to us. Now then, let's look at them. First of all, let us take the wrong way of looking at these things. Of course, it's typified by these people who put their question to our Lord, and no doubt they thought they were being very intelligent. They told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And they put this question. What we want to know, they say, is this. Well, did that happen to them because they were worse than anybody else? Because they were exceptionally great sinners? Is that the explanation? Is that the reason? That's what they deduced. That was their reaction to this event. And our Lord, you see, points out to them how terribly and tragically wrong their reaction is. Now, I'm concerned rather with the same thing as it manifests itself today. There is a wrong way of looking at these things and reacting to them. How does that show itself? Well, here's one of them. By not thinking at all. Not thinking at all. The news comes on your wireless. Terrible tragedy. What about it? Oh, well, let's hope the comic turn is going to follow so that we can forget all about it. It's a little bit disturbing, this. Shrug it off. Have a drink. Don't be morbid. Don't dwell on things like that. These things only disturb life. So there are large numbers of the people in the world today who don't think at all. It makes no impression whatsoever. They just go on as if nothing had taken place at all. They shrug it off. On with the dance. Strike up, let the band strike up. Let's keep going, keep bright and cheerful, whatever happens. Stop, don't stop to think. Whatever else you do, don't think. You'll only make yourself miserable if you think. Let's continue with a good time. Let's carry on. They just don't think at all. But of course, that's not the only wrong reaction at the present time. There are others who react like this. They read about a great calamity like this. What do they see? Ah, they just see another argument for the thing they're interested in. Earthquake in North Africa. Ah, now then, they said, now here it is, you see, we've been saying it all along. What's caused this earthquake? That's the question. And they say there's only one answer. It was the letting off of that French atomic bomb in the Sahara. So, you see, here's another argument for my protest against bombs. That's all I find in it. You see, this is it. If you will make these bombs and use them, if you don't join our march and stop them, you see what happens. This is the bomb. So the death of whatever it is, thousands of people, has no effect upon these people. But just to confirm their prejudice, make them see the thing they're interested in, the circumference, and they wax eloquent about that, like these people here with this case. The French bomb. That's it. Question of bombs. Everything comes to this question of bombs always. That's everything. That's the whole of the gospel. That's the whole of everything. Life is nothing but an attitude towards bombs or war. Nothing else. You've read about that in the newspapers, haven't you? It's figured prominently in the correspondence columns. People will find their prejudice almost anywhere and everywhere. And while they find it, they miss the real point, as they invariably do. Another reaction, of course, is this one. There are some people who hear of things like this, and they say, well, now, of course, 
The question that I'm concerned about is this. Why does God allow these things to happen? Those preachers talk about God and a God of love and of Jesus Christ and salvation. But what I say, says a man, is this. Indeed, I've always been saying it. That if there is a God at all, well, he couldn't allow things like this. Therefore, there isn't a God. You see, confirming his prejudice. He's always said there isn't a God. He's never believed in God. And all this nonsense, it ought to be dropped, this belief in God and in Christ and salvation. And when thousands of people are killed by an earthquake, they see nothing but confirmation of their prejudice. Oh, it's proved, they say. What's the use of talking about God if he allows things like this? Earthquakes, floods, calamities, disasters, spastic children, these horrible diseases, and so on. Ah, oh, they say it's no use. There isn't a God. There can't be. If God's a God, he wouldn't allow these things to happen. Therefore, there isn't a God. They've just found another argument to prove their case. QED. One man this, one man that, and all of them at the same time missing the point. Like these people who are speaking to our Lord, not seeing the essential central message, but just something that they were interested in. Now, I don't want to stop with these things tonight except to say this. This question of why these things do happen is a very great and a very profound question. It rarely goes into the same category as sickness and illness and things like that. All I know is what the Bible teaches me and it is this. That God has obviously chosen that certain things shall happen in this world as the result of secondary causes. Ultimately, everything is under the hand of God, but he doesn't always control everything directly. Many things have been so planned and arranged by God that they happen indirectly, cause and effect, primary causes and secondary causes. And there are such things as geological disturbances and so on. And many of the things that happen in life are to be explained and interpreted in that way. But you know, that isn't the whole truth. For the Bible also teaches us this, that while a thunderstorm or an earthquake may be purely a natural phenomenon, it may sometimes be a phenomenon specifically and particularly prepared and brought to pass by God himself. God has sent earthquakes. God has sent calamities. God has destroyed enemies. God has destroyed the world once by a flood. The Bible puts these two things before me. Well, then it says somebody, but what I want to know is this, now what you say about this particular case. And my friend, the answer as far as I am concerned is this. I don't know. And I'll go further. I don't think I am meant to know. I'll go even further than that. As far as I am concerned, it doesn't really matter. What matters as far as I am concerned is this, that this is God's world, that he is still God over all, that he can send calamities. He may or he may not, but of this I am certain. 
that there is to be an end of history and a final calamity. Earthquakes, pestilences, disasters are but pale and impressions of what is going to happen when the elements shall melt with a fervent heat and God shall come in judgment and really punish the world in righteousness. Now, our Lord had been teaching that in this previous chapter, chapter 11, uh, chapter 12. He has been teaching it in many other places in the scriptures. You'll find it running through the Bible from beginning to end. Oh yes, it was God who sent the flood. It was God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was God who destroyed the Tower of Babel. It was God who sent the children of Israel into captivity. It was God who used Pharaoh. God used the Chaldeans. He's done many of these things. And it's all meant to teach us this. That there will be a final judgment. In actual fact, it was the Roman army, the Roman Empire, that sacked the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But it is equally clear that they were acting as God's agents. He had prophesied that. The Lord Jesus Christ had prophesied it. He had said it was going to happen, and it did happen. And in the same way, he says, there is going to be a, a final judgment, a final calamity, when this universe will be wound up and judged for the last time. And that is coming. That is all I gather from the teaching of the scripture. But my first point therefore is this one. That the wrong way to look at all this is to be raising any one of these particular questions. Because as long as I'm simply raising these or stopping with them, I am missing the real point. What is that? That's my second point. There is a right way of looking at these calamities. What is that? Well, uh, there is no doubt about this. Our Lord has repeated the same thing twice over in five verses. Listen. Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above the Galileans, all the Galileans, because they suffered these things? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And then when he takes this other case of the tower that fell in Jerusalem, he says the same thing, I tell you nay, and repeats himself, repeats the same words. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. In other words, what's the right way of looking at these calamities? Well, the right way of looking at the calamity is this. Not to raise my theoretical questions. Were these people worse than others because that happened to them? Were those people there in Morocco worse than others because it happened to them? Why does this happen in a family? Why is a little child born spastic? Is it because they've sinned? You know these questions, they came to our Lord. You'll read it in John's Gospel, chapter 9. Blind men, who hath sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? These wonderful theoretical questions of ours, they're all wrong, says Christ. That's not the way you should face these things. Well, how should we face them? Well, he says you should face them like this. Not those people. Myself. I tell you nay, but except you repent, you also shall likewise perish. You. Not the other men. Not the theoretical question about God, which can't be answered finally because of our finite and sinful brains. Not my pet theory or my prejudice. Dear me, no, but myself. I. 
What has all this got to say to me? Has this got a message for me? You see, there, says our Lord, is the right way to face these things and to react to them. Dismiss all the other questions, but let these things turn upon you as a searchlight and make you examine yourself. Now, what do you do? Well, what you do is this. You say, a week ago, a week tonight, those people who are now dead by the thousand were alive as I am alive at this moment. And therefore, the first question I ask is this, why am I still alive? Don't worry about them. We don't know anything about them. But the question is, why am I still alive? They are people of like passions with myself, living in the same world. So much alike in every respect. They're dead, I'm alive. Why am I alive? Why am I still alive? Is it because I'm an exceptionally good man? Is it because they were on pleasure bent and I'm not? I live to serve God and to worship him and to praise his name and to follow and to imitate Christ. Why am I alive? That's the question. Have you asked it? Have you faced it? Have you been thinking about yourself during this last week? And have you asked that most essential and obvious question? Why am I left? Why am I still here? What is the reason? But then you go on to ask another question or to at any rate to consider another point, which is this. This thing which uh, has happened to those people is something which may happen at any moment, anywhere. Nobody imagined a week tonight that that was going to happen. Why should they? There hadn't been an earthquake for many a long year. Nobody was thinking about earthquakes. But though they were not thinking about it, it happened, you see. And it happened suddenly and dramatically. It was a matter of seconds and there it had all taken place. How do I react to that? Well, I react to that by saying this. I'm living in a world in which that sort of thing can happen. That's life in this world. In the midst of life, we are in death. We are here today, we are gone tomorrow. This makes me think that the whole of life is uncertain. It's tenuous. Let's think of the things that may happen and may happen at any moment. Sudden illness. Sudden loss. Sudden bereavement. Sudden sorrow. Sudden accident. Sudden death. Are we not living in such a world? Look at your newspapers every day. Not only calamities, but look at these sudden deaths. Men in the midst of life, full of strength and vigor and power, never been so well in all their lives, suddenly die without any warning at all. That's life. In an earthquake it happens on a big scale. And that's why I'm calling your attention to it. But what happens on the big scale is happening on the lesser scale, constantly and daily. My dear friend, can't you see? The reaction to this kind of thing is to make a man sit down and say, Very well, I'm in a world in which that sort of thing happens. And I don't know when it's going to happen. 
If only I knew when, I'd be able to make my program accordingly. But I don't know when young people don't rest on the fact that you're young. Poliomyelitis is no respecter of young people. Seems to be commoner in them, doesn't it? And all these fell diseases, apart from these calamities which suddenly appear thus in nature. My dear friend, have you sat down and said to yourself, this is a passing, an evanescent, an ephemeral life. I'm here, I'm gone. Life is uncertain. I hold on by a thread at the very best. Suddenly it comes and the end has come. We are living in a world in which this sort of thing happens. And then you go on to the most vital question of all, which is this. What would my position be if that did actually happen to me? You see, here where people who are in the world a week tonight, they're no longer in it. What's their position? No, no, you don't stop there. You really ask what's their position in order to ask this. What would my position be if this happened to me? Because it can, at any moment. Now then, here is the heart of the thing, says our Lord. I tell you nay, but except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. What he means is this. You will find yourself suddenly dying, and you'll be no more prepared than they were. That's the question. What about you? Are you ready? Well, uh, what would happen to me? Have you ever contemplated that position? You know, this is really the purpose of preaching the gospel. It is to remind men and women who are doing everything they can in this world at this moment, not to think about death, to think about death. The television and the wireless won't let you think about it, will they? No, no, the program keeps on and on and on you go. And you see, you can go on looking and reading and thinking and reading your novels and looking at your exciting things and you never sit down and face yourself. Then one day, you suddenly have to go and you've never thought of it. The business of preaching is to get us to think about it. What about you, says Christ? What if this happens to you? Where are you? Well, let me tell you what will happen. When this does happen, you find yourself face to face with God. You find yourself face to face with the judgment. He teaches that particularly in the parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came and sought fruit thereon, of course. He'd planted it and he expected fruit and he came and he rightly looked for it three years running and didn't find any. And he said to his men, to his vine dresser, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none, cut it down. Why, cumber is it the ground? It's useless, that tree. Take it away. Let's put in something better that'll be more profitable. He sought fruit, of course. He owned it. He planted it. This is but a parable, my friend. And it is a parable of the judgment of God. Yes, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, it is appointed unto all men once to die. And after death, the judgment. God, the owner, comes and examines for fruit. If you were amongst the thousands that suddenly went from time to eternity this last week, what would God have found when he examined you and looked for the fruit? What's the fruit, says somebody, I'll tell you. It is your soul. 
It is that part of himself that God put into men at the beginning, soul, spirit, call it what you like. That thing in man that was meant to correspond with God and was meant to make him the friend and the companion of God. That thing in man which makes him capable of spiritual life and delight in the presence of God and in the companionship of God. What does it lead to? What else is this fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, faith and temperance. Good life, righteousness, holy living. The demands of God's law, that's the fruit he looks for. The Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. In other words, you're living for God, not for your motor car, not for your children, not for your husband, not for your wife, not for your house, not for your name, not for your success in your profession, not for your bank balance, for God. No other gods, he'll examine you. That's the fruit he'll look for. How have you kept his day? What have you done about his holy name? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet. What about it, my friends? What if we'd been amongst them and God came and looked for the fruit? What would he have found? Here our Lord is referring particularly to the nation of Israel. He's referring to the three years of his own ministry. They claim to be God's people. He said God's going to look for fruit. Where is it? Have you produced it? If not, you're going to be cut off. Destroyed, and they were in A.D. 70. So the thing that I have to consider as I visualize and envisage myself suddenly cut off like this and going before God is how can I stand before God in the judgment? What can I say about my soul and my stewardship of it? What can I say about the life I've lived? Everything I've done is known. All my actions are known to God and they're recorded. What reply can I give? What plea can I offer? Have you been pre preparing yourself for it? Have you got your case ready? Do you know what you'll say when God faces you and you stand in the presence of God? My dear friend, death leads to judgment. And if there is no fruit, the verdict is, cut it down. You know, I wouldn't dare say a thing like this myself. It's our blessed Lord who says it. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? What does cut it down mean? It means this. That if we die in this condition of sin and without fruit, we are everlastingly destroyed out of the presence of God. Everlasting destruction. Terrible, awful thought. But what of you? What if you suddenly had to go? Where are you? Do you know? Are you prepared? These people were not. They were concentrating on other things and never thought about themselves. I ask in the name of God, what's it matter whether this thing was the result of the French atomic bomb or not? What matters is this, that if you and I are ushered suddenly from time into eternity, into the presence of God, by bombs or something else, where are we? How do we stand? How do we answer God's examination and scrutiny? Have you faced that? 
That's the thing you'll be examined on, not your view on bombs or war, or why does God allow this or that. Here's the one question, what have you done with your own life? What of your condition? And may I say just a word about the last point, which is this one. I've shown you the wrong way of facing the question. I've shown you the right way of facing the question. Let me just mention the vital lessons that can be learned from this right consideration of the question. Here's the first thing. Why am I still alive? And you know, there's only one answer. It is the answer that our Lord puts pictorially in this wonderful parable of his. The master of this vineyard said, I come three years seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he, answering, said this man who was a dresser of the vineyard, Lord, he said, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. Give it another chance. I want to go and dig around the roots here and loosen the earth. I want to put manure in. Give it a chance for another year. And then come again. If you find fruit, ah, you'll be satisfied and all will be well. But if you don't, well, then I'll agree with you. Thou shalt cut it down. Why are we still alive? Why are we still spared? Why hasn't the whole world long since been destroyed by a righteous and a holy God? There's only one answer, my friend. It is God's love. The love that he has revealed in and through his Son. Our Lord puts himself here into the picture in the guise of this particular dresser of the vineyard. It isn't that God is opposed. It's simply his dramatic way of representing the truth. It's his way of saying this, nation of Israel, why are you still here? Why haven't you been destroyed? Why hasn't your city been destroyed? Why haven't you been cast out among the Gentiles? The answer is because of the long suffering and the compassion and the patience and the kindness of God who has sent me into this world to give you a last chance. He's the dresser of the vineyard. His digging and dunging is nothing but his preaching of the gospel. His miraculous works done in their presence. His indication of the way of salvation. Yes, he's going to the cross to bear their sins in order that he may rescue them. This is the gospel. Wait, he says. Spare them. Let the gospel have a chance. And why are you and I here tonight? I'm happy and glad to think it's for the same reason. It is only of the mercy of the Lord that we are not consumed, says the psalmist, and it is nothing but the grace and kindness and love and long-suffering of God that allows us to go on living. Why? Well, that we may have another opportunity. What for? He's already told us twice over, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. My dear friends, we are given another opportunity to repent. What is repentance? I've already been describing it in a sense. 
It is to face yourself and your soul and your destiny to face God and his demands and realizing that you've got nothing at all, that you've borne no fruit whatsoever and that when he comes and examines he'll see nothing and will say, I find no fruit. It means that when you realize that you get on your knees and acknowledge it to God and confess it utterly and absolutely without any reservation at all. Would you like to know whether you have repented? I can tell you. This is repentance. That you get on your knees and you say to God, God, I see that I've got no claim upon your mercy and upon your love at all. I've forgotten you. I've ignored you. I've spurned your vice divine. I've spat in your face. I've ridiculed you. I've made fun of your son. I've ridiculed the most glorious thing you've ever done. I trusted to myself and my own intellect. I have committed acts of sin. I've been a fool. I am vile. I am wretched. God, if you destroyed me at this moment, I wouldn't have any complaint. I deserve it all. Righteousness and justice would consign me to hell, and I richly deserve it. Repentance is to say that to God. To acknowledge your sin and transgression. To stop excusing yourself for putting up any plea. To cease to criticize God and his actions. But to prostrate yourselves in the dust before him. And say, God, thou art God, thou art holy. And I am vile. Have mercy upon me. Sorrow for sin. And above all, sorrow because of the supreme sin of ever having had such unworthy thoughts about God and not having lived entirely and only for his mercy. Repentance. Except ye repent, that's it. Acknowledgement, confession of it, absolutely without reservation. What then? Oh, taking advantage of this process of digging and dunging, The gospel of Jesus Christ. Though I may have sinned all my life. And lived as a fool and as a rebel. I am confronted by a message which tells me that God has so loved me. That he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for me and for my sins, that Christ has borne my punishment, the punishment of my vileness and folly and unworthiness. He's taken it all. He suffered for me. He's been smitten. I'm told that. And what have I to do? I simply believe on him. I believe the message. I don't understand it, but I believe it. Because he spoke it. He said he'd come to do it. Here's the digging and the dunging. I have simply to believe and to surrender my life to him and to go after him. Come what may, I cease with the life I've been living. I see it was leading me to destruction and that if I died like that, I'd have gone to hell. So I turn my back upon it. I fall at his feet and I say I can scarcely believe that such love is possible. That the innocent should die for the guilty and the pure for the vile. 
and that the one sinned against should die for those who rebelliously sinned against him. But, oh, Christ, I see you've done it. I give you my life, my all. Love so amazing, so divine demands. My soul, my life, my all. Jesus, I, my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. What's the value of all to me when I'm in the earthquake and the end has come? It's all gone. I'm not going on that way any longer. Jesus, I, my cross have taken. All to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence, my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought and hoped and known. Yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven! are still mine own. We are here that the digging and the dunging may take place. Are you responding to it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as you are and you shall be saved. Though you've been barren until this moment, though there has been no fruit in your life until this second, yield, believe, Let him dig. Let him dung. Don't resist. Yield yourself to his entreaties. Respond to the tender pleadings of his Holy Spirit. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Rise up out of your sin. Go after him. Seeing the folly and the futility and the shame and ugliness of everything else. My dear friend, I'm holding you. Why? I'm pleading with you for this reason. That if you don't respond to this, nothing remains but eternal perdition. Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. But if not, after that thou shalt cut it down. If you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and go after him and bear fruit, you remain as you are, barren and fruitless. And there is nothing else that can save you. Christ's action, and that alone, stands between us and hell. But thank God, believing in it, it opens to us the door into heaven and everlasting bliss. I say unto you, to all your questions and theories and arguments and debates and interest in this world, nay! But except you repent, when the final destruction comes, 
you shall all likewise perish. But you needn't. And you know if you do, the most terrible part of your suffering will be this. I venture to prophesy it. That you will remember what I, even I in my feebleness, said to you in Westminster Chapel on Sunday night, March the 6th, 1960. You will say, if only I had listened. It'll be no good, it's too late. The earthquake will have come. And you will have gone. Amen.